not sure if you can see me yet. Uh, this is the first time I've done a YouTube video. Oh yeah, it's working now. Yeah, hello. Uh, welcome to not a Facebook live video, but a YouTube live video. Uh, you may know that um, I would occasionally, maybe, you know, sometimes it's once or twice a week, and then sometimes a month goes past, I don't do anything, but I'll pop on and chat for 20 or 30 minutes about some issue. And um, then uh, I, I often put them up on the YouTube channel. But today I'm going to experiment with going direct to YouTube. Uh, my hope in the, in the next year or two is to do more stuff on YouTube, release more free content, uh, more clips from seminars uh, that I'm doing. And um, I want to say thank you, by the way, to everybody who supports me on Patreon. That is allowing me to do this. Uh, pretty much now, um, I make my living from uh, the direct support of people who like my work or people who have got something from it and want to show their support or you know people who enjoy these lectures. And I really appreciate that. I mean, I can't believe that I get to do what I do um, because of you. And that's allowing me to do some new stuff. Like I've got a book of fairy tales that um, I'm going to be bringing out very soon. Oh, I'll show you it actually. Uh, here is the um, the proof copy, uh, and if you can see, there's lots of cool stuff inside. You know, so I'm doing this. We're gonna. I'm basically self-publishing because uh, I can work directly with people who support me, um, and uh, cut out all of this uh, industry that I'm not necessarily against, but um, I'm. You know, I prefer to work at a very freelance level. So we'll be self-publishing that. I'll be giving it out to people on Patreon. Um, but also I wanted my next book to come out as an audio only thing, product. Again, I can do that because I'm not having to run around looking for a publisher. So um, thank you for your support. Uh, I'm always committed to giving free content. So you don't need to sign up to get the secret. Um, but if you do like, the stuff that I talk about, you know, there's loads more uh, content on my Patreon. Uh, I'm doing videos, uh, written reflections, uh, book studies, etc. So, anyway, I have been reading uh, a lot of stuff about Jordan Peterson recently, um, and the reason is because I've been invited to give a talk um, on him, both as a phenomenon and in terms of um, his thinking. Uh, in October uh, in Boise, if I'm saying Boise, is it Boise? I don't know. Uh, uh, I don't even know where that is. It's somewhere in America. Um, and uh, so I've been kind of, you know, listening to seminars, immersing myself in them a little bit. I did do one other video about him uh, ages ago uh, after I'd watched an interview and read something that Shizak wrote. And I was amazed at the response. It was quite funny. Um, I realized then that this guy is a very div divisive character. You know, some people love him, some people hate him. Um, he's very much a symbolic figure. And uh, so I, at some stage, I want to address that. But anyway, as I was listening to him uh, two nights ago, he, he talked about this thing, cultural Marxism. And you know, I find that kind of interesting. So I listened to the seminar and he said some interesting things about uh, this notion of cultural Marxism and also postmodern philosophy. Uh, especially in relation to interpretation. So I thought I'd say a few words on that. I've literally just done a seminar um, looking at interpretation, so I thought it would be good just to jump on and chat about that in relation to Peterson. 
So what I gather from the seminar I listened to, and uh, actually he did this in two seminars, is his reading uh, of kind of like uh, the European intellectual tradition and how it has infiltrated America goes something like this, in a nutshell. Uh, you have uh, the intellectual tradition of Marxism, and Marxism, and particularly in Europe, was a very you know huge uh, intellectual movement. It's one of the biggest intellectual movements of the 20th century. Um, uh, and you put alongside that, you know, Darwin and Freud, you know, these are, these are the big thinkers. And um, uh, Peterson says that basically with actually existing communism and what happened in the Soviet Union, uh, Marxism became a untenable position, effectively. Uh, but what happened is instead of intellectuals abandoning um, uh, Marxism, uh, eventually you know, some did like Jean-Paul Sartre and uh, whatnot, but instead of many of these intellectuals abandoning it, what happened is they expanded it and changed it. So Marxism, uh, some of the central themes were retained, but then it was put to use uh, in cultural theory. So basically you took these Marxist ideas but divorced them from political economy and started to apply them to art history, to film theory, to the criticism of literature, uh, to kind of pop culture in general. So what you have with particularly the Frankfurt School is the application of Marxist theories to a whole range of human phenomenon. Uh, this is partly for Peterson, you know, the result of the bankruptcy of Marxism, but it also spoke to the European intellectuals' inability to let it go. They had to keep it, so it changed and it kind of like redressed, it took on a new guise and actually in a sense became bigger than ever because now uh, these Marxist ideas were being applied to a whole range of activities that uh, somebody might not talk about in terms of economics. Now, then, oh, and by the way, it's interesting because you've got the Frankfurt School, and then of course at the same time you have the development of existentialism, and these are two kind of rival camps. The existentialists uh, are seen primarily as um, idealists, uh, and then the Frankfurt School is uh, kind of there advocating materialism, and uh, so you see these kind of this tension arising in in the intellectual kind of atmosphere of particularly France at the time. Um, Peterson is more influenced by uh, existentialists, um, a little bit anyway, you know, he, he, likes, um, he likes Nietzsche and Peterson's actually called himself an existentialist, um, although um, for interesting reasons. Like he said he called himself an existentialist because he believes that, uh, what was the comment? Um, oh, that, that we are not transparent to ourselves, that, that um, we act without really knowing why we're acting um, and uh, you know we often rationalize after the fact uh, I absolutely I think we do that although I don't think that's a, a dominant theme within existentialism but anyway um, you have the Frankfurt School you have existentialism and then what happens kind of in the aftermath of these movements is postmodernism post-structuralism you have the rise of thinkers like Derrida and Foucault and Lacan and um, Peterson argues that or suggests that um, that you know again these are Marxist thinkers 
who have begun to apply Marxist theory more widely in terms of culture. But then they also bring something else to the table, uh, which is a revived form of relativism or perspectivalism, where the, the postmodern thinkers for Peterson um, question the dominant ways of reading a text. So the idea is that actually there are multiple readings of a text. Um, there's, and in fact, the, there's these um, minority readings that get suppressed, and they get suppressed because uh, those who are in power, uh, in whatever field, in art theory or literature or whatever, they're the ones who get to tell their story, to give their interpretation of the narrative. And so all of these other interpretations disappear. And, um, and so whenever you listen to Peterson, he kind of says like, like what Derrida is doing is he's, he's trying to uh, show that language is all about slippage, all about movement, that there's no way of kind of having a canonical authoritative uh, reading of a text. What you simply have is a sea of differences and a sea of multiplicities that we have to swim within. Um, and then, of course, from this he says, you get, well, this infiltrates America, so this is the same, uh, Pallier says the same thing, um, that this French theory kind of uh, goes through the American Academy and, um, you know, is even like changed a little bit in that transition. And then the practical outworking of it are, are things like identity politics. Because for Peterson, you know, identity politics is uh, the idea of retaining um, oppressor and oppressed, majority, minority, strong, weak, powerful, powerless. So this kind of like, what Marx sees, or sorry, what Peterson sees as central in Marx is this distinction between the oppressed, the proletariat, and the oppressor, which is the bourgeoisie. Um, now, actually, I think Peterson's wrong there. Um, in the sense that um, in feudalism there is oppressed and oppressor, in slavery there's oppressed and oppressor, and they're not capitalist systems. Um, it doesn't make you a Marxist to think that there are oppressed people and are, are oppressors. Um, Marxism is primarily uh, a, a theory and a science trying to explore um, the types of oppression that occur within capitalism as the capitalist epoch of history. But anyway, Peterson takes this idea of the oppressed and the oppressor and says, of course, that's retained in identity politics, along with this idea that, in a sense, there is no absolute reason or rational rationality that we share. So there's no way that we can talk between the divide. Oppressor and oppressed um, are in incommensurable worlds. And therefore, what you have is you can't understand my experience. I can't understand your experience. So you have these little groups that then fight for their right to have power. Um, but in a sense, reason is not able to be used because you have incommensurable worlds and reason isn't some universal that we all share. And therefore, you have just a lot of shouting at people and um, a lot of... Um, uh, basically the inability to have like real dialogue and debate. Um, you know, Peterson's against that because Peterson's principles include that there is a universal reason that we can all share, we all participate in, that in, in a sense, in order, if, to speak, to argue, you have to presuppose that there is a universal or rational basis. Um, and that uh, splitting the world into one binary, 
is problematic. That actually you should have a multivariate analysis of problems and issues within a society and not try to reduce it all to some sort of class distinction or class distinction in disguise. So Marxism gives birth to cultural Marxism and um, uh, I don't know if it gives birth to postmodernism but then postmodernism kind of like kind of uh, develops some of those cultural Marxist ideas and adds into the mix a type of intellectual uh, relativism and then that infiltrates American universities and uh, one of the practical results is out of these universities you have the rise of um, identity politics. Now that, of course, that's, that's very condensed, although I think Peterson himself condenses it in that way. Um, and I'd love to kind of go through it. But one, one thing I'll, I'll mention about it is, it's actually, it's very Nietzschean. You know, Peterson's very influenced by Nietzsche. And in some respects, it seems like a, a similar to what Nietzsche says about Christianity. So, you know, for Nietzsche, uh, Judaism to start with, um, have, is a religion of power. First, like all religions are aff affirmative religions where you use God to, to, to thank whenever, whenever there's good things happening to you and maybe you kind of like shout at if something bad goes wrong. And Nietzsche has no problems with the gods that are expressions of the community. But then he says something happened whenever uh, the Israelites are enslaved. Whenever they are enslaved by the Egyptians, um, what happens is you can either get rid of God, right? Your God is no longer working for you, you've been enslaved. Or you can kind of use your God to justify the position and also to like um, critique the enemy. So the enemy becomes, you know, the condemned of God. They become evil and bad. God justifies, you know, the hatred of the enemy and your own position. And again, Nietzsche doesn't have a real problem with that. I mean, that when you've got no other weapons, you use ideology, right? It's the only weapon you have when you don't have access to the swords or the guns or the tanks. Um, but Nietzsche says that what happens is then religion gradually becomes not something that is affirmative, but that is full of resentment. That actually it becomes, resentment becomes a spiritual condition. You know, everyone feels resentment at times. Again, Nietzsche would have no problems with that. But it's when resentment becomes the, the glasses through which you see everything. You see everything in relation to jealousies and envies. And, and he calls this resentment. So resentment is different from resentment. Resentment is maybe you don't like your, your business colleague because they've got a better job than you. They got a promotion and you didn't. You know, fair enough. You might feel that, you let it, you let it pass. Um, but resentment is when, in a sense, suddenly everything you see is through the lens of hating other people, of, of being jealous of them and envious of them. And everything good and noble, you turn into something weak and horrible. You can't help but see dirt in every flower bed, right? You can't help but see dust in every house that's been cleaned. You know, there'll always be a little bit of dust. Um, and by the way, this is what Nietzsche means when he says, you know that famous quote, uh, what doesn't kill you will make you stronger. Um, you know, it, it's, it's obviously false, taken out of context. You know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, you know, it doesn't, for both literally you might have a disease and it doesn't kill you, but it leaves you weakened. But also psychologically, 
you can have an experience that doesn't kill you like you keep going but it really damages you uh, in, in how much you can affirm life you don't go out as much you don't talk to people etc etc right um, but it's it's because it's out of context um, in context what Nietzsche is saying is he's imagining someone who is so healthy and strong in their inner life that even sickness is something they can turn into strength um, that even bad things that happen to them they can because they are so healthy they can make even sickness healthy they can get something good out of it so for for Nietzsche the sick person is one who can make everything that is healthy and good into something sickly and awful and to be judged whereas there is a type of person potentially a person to come who is able to be so strong that even when things terrible things happen to them they are able to um, affirm life now of course Nietzsche might be reflecting on something of his own experience here because he suffered from terrible illness and he his illness could have helped him made him into someone who was very bitter who only saw negativity but what Nietzsche tried to do is take on all of the sickness that he was feeling but not let it uh, give him a sick philosophy but rather to develop a philosophy of affirmation so in some ways um, I know in Christianity then for Nietzsche is the universalizing of this resentment so within Judaism uh, there's an affirmation of life a health that is damaged whenever the Israelites are enslaved by the Egyptians and then that's when resentment can be seen more in religion and then Christianity kind of like deepens it and widens it now resentment is turned against everything that is strong and everything that is good and so when you read Peterson it's almost like he's saying that Marxism is 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 the resentment right so in a weird way you know Marxism is going ahead uh, it's an intellectually credible position there's nothing wrong with it then the 20th century happens uh, Stalin communism Mao all of that uh, and the Marxists have a uh, they have a choice right they can either abandon Marxism or keep going and make it into something nasty and vicious attacking everything that is noble and good about society and many Marxists did that some will have renounced it you know someone like Sartre um, and then some never did but what they did is they then universalized it just like in Christianity universalized the resentment of the particular religion Judaism so the cultural Marxists took they became resentful of all that was strong and powerful and noble and then expanded that critique out into arts all that is good in art in literature and in, in, in architecture and you know basically an attack on everything um, and the result of that is a politics of resentment um, so yeah and so in some respects I see Peterson having a Nietzschean reading but but instead of it being Christianity in a sense it's it's Marxism um, now yeah I would love to kind of go through each of these stages um, and kind of critique them because I think that there is the smallest grain of truth to that narrative um, but uh, I think it's it makes big mistakes right but I, I want to concentrate only on one element in this so as not to keep you forever 
Um, it's, it's this idea that post-structural theory or post-modernism uh, was a type of intellectual relativism, a type of a play of multiple interpretations of a text that breaks down the idea that we can actually read a text, understand it, and you know, kind of make claims about it. Now, Peterson's not saying, we, of course, we get the absolute interpretation. It's like science, you make claims. Some claims are more uh, legitimate than others. Uh, some claims really come out as being powerful and have, having more explanatory value than other interpretations. And so, you know, Peterson is in no way saying, oh yeah, we can find the true interpretation of a certain thinker or a certain text. But he is saying that we can um, make you know, claims as to what texts mean, and that, that postmodernism is an attempt to undermine this and create this world of multiplicity without uh, an ability to communicate. And I think that's just a misreading of what people like Derrida and Lacan are doing. So I'm going to try to, to touch on the grain of truth that's in it, and then try to um, uh, articulate uh, the difference. So, I mean, the grain of truth is that, yes, post-structuralism is post-structuralism. So it's post, it's, it's critiquing in some ways the idea that we have, that beneath language, we can find structures of meaning. So, you know, it, basically we can read a text and can make claims <clears throat> as to, <clears throat> you know, the meaning of that text. Post-structuralists are looking at how language has slippage within it. They're very interested in how language changes and uh, depending on what context it's in. <clears throat> but the main interest is not in a sense that text can be read in multiple ways, in any number of ways, but it's more that texts communicate two things. <clears throat> they communicate what they're saying, but they also, in what they don't say, communicate things. And that if you want to understand a text in a deep way, in a rich way, you have to not simply understand what is being said uh, explicitly, but also pay attention to tensions in the text, contradictions in the text, things that aren't said in the text, things that are said and can be read in multiple ways. So, and th this is the idea that when we speak, we don't just say things consciously, unconscious things also get communicated. <clears throat> this is, of course, one of the insights of psychoanalysis, um, is the idea that uh, when we speak, uh, we can betray emotions and feelings and desires that we actually don't consciously know through slips of the tongue, through forgetting a name whenever we're trying to say it, through making a mistake, um, if every time you're trying to meet somebody, you always forget, you're always, or you always cancel the appointment. Sometimes that can mean not simply that you're a busy person, but that maybe you don't want to meet them. You maybe don't know that yourself, but in your activity and in your mistakes, your forgetfulness, a truth is spoken. And in a lot of post-structural theory, the idea is how do we pay close attention to what is spoken in the text in, uh, in, in ways that are not conscious. Uh, and I'm going to use a very 
mundane example, this is a silly example, but I think it communicates something. Um, it's a sign that I saw held up uh, by some uh, Democrats uh, during the elections and afterwards, which said, uh, love trumps hate, right? So a sign that says, love trumps hate. And, uh, you know, the meaning is obvious. Uh, it's saying that love is better than hate. And it's saying that Trump is someone, this is from the, the person who's holding up, saying and Trump represents hatred or Trump has hatred to others. And, the, you know, we condemn that. So love trumps hate, simple message. Love is better than hate and Trump is on the side of hate. There is a lot of hatred maybe in, in, his, in what he says and hatred of, of certain people. Um, but of course, you can also look at the sign and say, oh wow, there's also another way of reading it, which is, you know, we love Trump's hate, right? Which is, uh, of course, is the idea that I enjoy the hatred of Trump. I find it fascinating, it, it enlivens me, it gets me interested in the news, I can't wait to find out what next crazy thing has happened. Um, that actually, you know, Trump's hate enriches, enriches my life. Now, that is definitely not the conscious meaning of the sign, but it, it, you kind of feel when you look at it, you go, oh, is, is that unspoken element? Does it say something? Does it, does it, does it, does it speak a truth? Does it give, does it give a, a richer and deeper understanding of something, right? So that, that multi-layered example. Um, and so this is what postmodernists, a post-structuralist will be doing with the text. And it's not that they're looking for things that aren't there. <clears throat> they're, looking at th they're looking for things that are there that aren't there. And so an example of this would be during the Troubles in Northern Ireland, uh, people in the Protestant community, I say, would not talk about Buddhism and their Buddhist neighbours. Uh, but they also often wouldn't talk about their Catholic neighbours, right? And vice versa, a Catholic community wouldn't talk about, say, Buddhist neighbours, people who were Buddhists who lived in Northern Ireland, but they also wouldn't talk about Protestant families that, that, that were neighbours who just lived, you know, across, uh, across the road behind a wall. Now, these are two absences. But one is a nothing and one is a nothing that is something. You know, you're not talking about your Buddhist neighbours because you're literally not thinking about it. There's very few Buddhists in Northern Ireland at the time and nobody was thinking about them, right? But not speaking about your Catholic or your Protestant neighbours, that nothing, that absence, that silence kind of says something. And if you know you read a history of Northern Ireland and the Troubles and it didn't mention one side or the other, you would obviously be going, not mentioning it says something. That nothing, that lack in the text is actually something significant to make a comment on. Not the, the fact that they don't mention Buddhism, right? Because you go like, that, that is unlikely to have been anything that was important. Um, so in a sense, post-structuralism is, is aimed at the exact opposite of the idea of a free, free play of, of, of any type of interpretation. It's kind of saying, how do we take seriously the lacks, the gaps, the mistakes, the tensions and the contradictions within a text that will actually help us understand it more and give us more insight into um, you know, 
some of what that text might be communicating. Uh, and yeah, in relation to that then, um, I don't think the argument can be made that post-structuralism has any connection with identity politics. Um, uh, you know, I'm not saying there's a big disconnection, but uh, I would say that it de one that definitely doesn't lead to the other. And in fact, I think um, uh, a lot of post-structural thinkers would completely agree with Peterson that say that their, their reason is a type of absolute, that, the, the, that communication itself presupposes rationality. And, um, and we wouldn't have a problem with that claim. And that actually the post-structuralist reading of a text or a political movement or a religious or cultural movement um, isn't to show that there's a million different ways to interpret and therefore no one good way, but to simply try to um, listen to what the text doesn't explicitly say or where it, where it, it slips up or where attention is and taking those tensions uh, seriously uh, in order to understand the text better. Okay, there's some thoughts. I don't even know if this worked because it's my first time using a YouTube Live. Uh, I'm going to listen to it. Um, if it's rubbish or it didn't work, um, then so be it. But uh, if it did work, then I'll try and do one of these again, maybe in the next week or two. Thanks very much for checking in and I'll talk to you all again soon.